Welcome to Folk Wisdom Podcast, where we examine the knowledge encoded in cultural sayings, stories, and beliefs, and learn ways to apply it to our daily lives. This is Episode 2. This episode is about timeless principles of personal finance. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. You know what they say, a penny saved is a penny earned. Do you know who said that first, where that expression comes from? Well, it sort of comes from Benjamin Franklin, but not really. He didn't say it quite like that, but he's probably still the father. Who's Benjamin Franklin? Well, just go right ahead and reach down into your pocket and pull out one of those crisp $100 bills you walk around with. The guy smiling at you Mona Lisa style from that $100 bill, that's Ben Franklin. Ben was probably the cleverest founding father. He invented lots of stuff, became wealthy through successful business ventures, and lived a remarkably long time, especially for the 1700s. Another thing he did was go around compiling sayings, maxims, aphorisms, and other examples of folk wisdom, which he published under the pseudonym Poor Richard. He created this character of Poor Richard for a book he called Poor Richard's Almanac, which sold a lot of copies back then. You know how they say you can either learn things the easy way or the hard way? The almanac seemed to represent for Ben the potential to learn things the easy way, that is, from other people's mistakes and successes. Early in Ben's life, he had to deal with some unreliable business partners and friends. They either weren't good with money, or they were drunks who partied too much, and also weren't good with money. Ben himself liked to party, but he dug up some lessons in these old proverbs and folk sayings, and he really tried to shape his habits to conform to the wisdom he found in them. The application of those lessons helped make him successful in business. Unlike many famous historical geniuses, Ben was actually able to make a lot of money. He did this mostly through a combination of basic morality and sturdy common sense. Lucky for us modern folks, he wrote some things down that he had learned, including the expression, a penny saved is two pence clear. That expression appeared in his 1737 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac. A later version contained the maxim, a penny saved is a penny got. We can assume over the years that these sayings transform to a penny saved is a penny earned, but all three don't really mean exactly the same thing. What do they mean? How can putting a penny under your mattress be the same as working for an hour to get that penny? A quick note, for today, you can picture a penny to be any small sum of money you like. It could be a dollar, it could be a $20 bill, or even one of those Benjamins that you keep in your pocket. First off, Ben Franklin understood that time and money are the two big financial assets. That's why he coined another immortal phrase, time is money. We end up exchanging one for the other, usually trading time for money. Here's a section of a book Franklin had reprinted in 1748 titled The American Instructor. This is found under the heading Advice to a Young Tradesman, written by an old one. Quote, Remember that time is money. He that can earn ten shillings a day by his labor and goes abroad, or sits idle one half of that day, though he spends but six pence during his diversion or idleness, ought not to reckon that the only expense, he has really spent or rather thrown away five shillings besides. End quote. Let's break that down. I'll change the monetary amounts to more familiar modern-day figures. These days, it might help to picture this in terms of what's now called the gig economy, because Ben's reasoning here applies a little more to freelance work than salaried. So let's say you can earn $15 an hour on some freelance task, like driving for Uber or cleaning houses. That's $120 a day if you worked eight hours. But let's say you only worked for four hours, a half day, and made $60. Then you went out and instead of working another four hours, you bought a coffee and hung out. 
The coffee costs $5, and you put it on your credit card because you haven't gotten paid yet. Since you lost four hours worth of labor that day, in this example, valued at $60, you have to add that to the $5 you spent on that coffee. So in Ben Franklin's words, you can't reckon that $5 your only expense because you have thrown away the $60 besides. Ben's approach is designed to get you to change your behaviors, not to do some clever math that turns $5 into 6 or something like that. This next example will explain how a penny saved is two pence clear. Imagine you buy coffee every day before work, and it's $5 a coffee. One day, you save that $5 by not getting coffee. That $5 is the penny saved. In the original expression, a penny saved is two pence clear. Two pence means two pennies, by the way. So imagine two $5 bills. How are they clear? Clear of what? Why are there suddenly two of them? They're clear on your balance sheet. Pretend you drew up a balance sheet of your expenses and listed your income on one side and debts on the other. It takes $5 to pay the debt on the credit card to zero out your balance sheet, then another $5 to match the total that you would have if you had saved that $5 instead of going into debt for it. Okay, that's enough math for a while. Remember, this is a psychological trick Ben is playing, not a financial or mathematical one. It's a way of thinking about spending versus saving versus borrowing. It's not a magic method of turning $1 into 2. The magic is in the formation and implementation of productive habits. The problem is, earning money feels rewarding. Spending money can also be oddly rewarding. Saving money? Not so much. That's why Ben's expression morphed over the years into, a penny saved is a penny got, and then eventually into, a penny saved is a penny earned. When you describe saving using the language of earning, you can feel rewarded by it. The idea that savings is earning is just a way to reframe the behavior in your mind so you feel rewarded by it. By changing your perception of saving into something more like earning, you give yourself a reason not to just earn and spend. Buying things feels good. It feels good enough for some people to become an addiction. But there weren't nearly as many material goods on offer back in the 18th century. Why was Ben Franklin so concerned with savings versus spending? Well, as poor Richard says, a good example is the best sermon. So here's an example. Ben looked around colonial America and saw people wasting their time instead of working, and then spending their hard-earned money at the end of the day drinking. People bought things on credit back in the 1700s, just as they do now, though we have considerably more access to credit now. Just like in our times, people used credit then as a means of consumption smoothing. That means they tried to maintain a constant standard of living despite fluctuations in income, which often meant they had to take on some debt. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? When Ben Franklin was young, he had a friend named Collins. Collins was just as smart as Ben. In fact, Ben said Collins was more eloquent than he was and better at math. Collins borrowed a bunch of money from Ben and basically spent it all drinking and partying. He even missed out on a job or two when they smelled alcohol on him during his interviews. Collins couldn't find a job, so he never repaid the money. He ended up moving to the Caribbean, essentially fleeing whatever debts he had. I don't think Ben was the only person he would have owed money to, but either way, it's a cautionary tale. Ben felt cheated, and the lesson obviously stuck with him. He would later write in one of his almanacs, drink water, put the money in your pocket, and leave the dry bellyache in the punch bowl. So what else did Ben Franklin learn that made him wealthy and successful back then? Does it apply now? For that, we turn back to his Advice to a Young Tradesman, written by an old one. Quote, In short, the way to wealth, if you desire it, is as plain as the way to market. It depends chiefly on two words, 
industry, and frugality, i.e., waste neither time nor money, but make the best use of both. He that gets all he can honestly, and saves all he gets, necessary expenses accepted, will certainly become rich. If that being who governs the world, to whom all should look for a blessing on their honest endeavors, doth not in his wise providence otherwise determine. End quote. Industry and frugality. That's the way to wealth, according to Ben Franklin. Not wasting your time or your money. Let's talk about industry. How do you avoid wasting your time? Ben had cataloged 13 virtues that he tried to live by. Industry happened to be virtue number six. He defined it like this. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. Ben's concept of industry was basically a combination of hard work, moderation, and discipline. Hard work, discipline, these ideas make sense to most people, but they're more popular in theory than in practice. Industry happens to be what another famous Ben Franklin quote is about. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The message in that one is that even in small doses, industry pays off. This is because the effects of hard work and discipline compound on themselves. Each increase leads to a bigger increase the next time. And the opposite is also true. A decrease in discipline leads to a bigger decrease the next time. Remember this compounding effect later when I talk about money. The effects of compounding are key to understanding Ben's financial philosophy. There's another reason that a little industriousness goes a long way. It's related to what's called the 80-20 rule, or the Pareto principle. There's a good chance you've already heard of this idea, but if you hadn't, it's related to research by Vilfredo Pareto, an Italian economist who studied the distribution of wealth in early 20th century Italy. Pareto found that 80% of the wealth in Italy in his day was owned by about 20% of the population. Eventually, this led to the formation of this popular idea called the 80-20 rule, which is an intuitive, sort of non-scientific application of his principles. It's a very popular idea. It's popular because it's powerful. Basically, the idea is something like 20% of your efforts may give you 80% of your results. Of course, the ratios vary in different domains. It's not always 80-20. I'll give you an example. If you go to the gym and exercise for an hour every day, you're doing pretty good, aren't you? Doing pretty stellar in life. That one hour is probably 1 16th of your waking hours for that day, if you sleep for eight hours. So 6% of your daily efforts are gonna give you well over 90% of your fitness results. A small, consistent behavior can have disproportional effects for better or worse. Ben Franklin understood this principle well, even if Pareto hadn't been born yet. One other key to not wasting time? Don't procrastinate. One today is worth two tomorrows, as poor Richard says. Never leave that till tomorrow, which you can do today. Now let's talk frugality. While Ben's first pillar of wealth, industry, is concerned with not wasting your time, the other pillar, frugality, is concerned with not wasting your money. He explained the virtue of frugality like this. Make no expense, but to do good to others or yourself, i.e., waste nothing. How do you avoid wasting your money? Well, first off, what constitutes a waste of money? To get the answer, you have to understand two things. Number one, opportunity cost. And number two, compound interest. Opportunity cost is an idea from economics that means, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the loss of potential gain from other alternatives when one alternative is chosen. Ben Franklin wrote a lot about opportunity cost. 
1737 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac, in a section titled Hints for Those That Would Be Rich, Ben wrote the following, quote, The use of money is all the advantage there is in having money. For six pounds a year, you may have the use of one hundred pounds if you are a man of known prudence and honesty. He that spends a groat a day idly spends idly above six pounds a year, which is the price of using one hundred pounds. He that wastes idly a groat's worth of his time per day, one day with another, wastes the privilege of using one hundred pounds each day. He that idly loses five shillings worth of time loses five shillings and might as prudently throw five shillings in the river. He that loses five shillings not only loses that sum, but all the advantage that might be made by turning it in dealing, which by the time that a young man becomes old, amounts to a comfortable bag of money. End quote. A groat was four pennies, by the way. Two pence is two pennies, a groat is four pennies. Let's break this down. The use of money is all the advantage there is in having money. Why do we have money in the first place? Where did it come from? Why have a government-backed medium of exchange instead of trading cows or blankets or something? Money exists for a few reasons, but its best attribute is probably that it can be pooled or portioned out efficiently. In a barter system, you can't really trade a portion of a cow for some beans, for example. You'd have to trade the whole cow and hope that the person you're selling the cow to can trade you enough beans to make it worthwhile. Even for a small, underweight cow, this is for you bean counters out there, that would be over 700 pounds of beans at today's commodity prices. It's not practical if you don't need that many beans. Or they'd have to throw in other things that you didn't really need to make up the difference. That's not efficient. You also can't save up your cows until they amount to something, but you can save your pennies one penny at a time. So money can be portioned out for transactions. It can also be pooled for business ventures. You and your partners can put your money together and purchase something large or lend that money to someone else, expecting to make a profit in due time. That's the foundation of our modern economy, and something that was around in Franklin's time as well. The next part, reading from the text. For six pounds a year, you may have the use of 100 pounds. Like I was saying, to start a business, it's often necessary to borrow money to pay upfront costs. So for your annual loan payment, you can have the use of a much larger sum. A home mortgage is one example of this in action. You get to use a large sum of money for a monthly fee, and you buy a house with that. Skipping ahead a bit, in Franklin's book, quote, He that idly loses five shillings worth of time, loses five shillings, and might as prudently throw five shillings in the river. He that loses five shillings not only loses that sum, but all the advantage that might be made by turning it in dealing, which by the time that a young man becomes old, amounts to a comfortable bag of money, end quote. Turning it in dealing, that means investing. This is where the opportunity cost comes in. When you waste your time and or money, you lose all the future gains that the money could bring if it was put to good use. You lose all the advantage that the concept of money is designed to bring you. You lose that five shillings now, and you lose all the future shillings it could have earned you. Those future gains would also compound on themselves and amount to a comfortable bag of money after a while. Compound interest is a popular financial topic. It's been called the eighth wonder of the world, though no one is sure who came up with that expression. It was apparently not Albert Einstein, though he's often the one-sided. There certainly is something that seems magical about exponential growth. I'll tell you a quick story, the exact origins of which are unknown, 
that has to do with the invention of the game of chess. So it probably took place in India. There was a guy, maybe the inventor of chess, maybe just a really smart dude, and a powerful king owed this person a reward for some service he had provided. The king asked the guy what he wanted for payment. And this enterprising fellow tells the king that he wants one grain of rice, or wheat in some versions of the tale. He wants that one grain of rice placed on square one of a chessboard, followed by twice as much rice on square two, then twice as much again on square three, and so on, doubling the amount of rice grains every time until the chessboard is full. He wants that amount of rice as payment. So the king agrees. He loves a bargain. He thinks rice is cheap. He orders his treasurer to make the necessary calculations. The treasurer gets out his abacus. A chessboard has 64 squares. By the fourth square, the king only owes eight grains. By the fifth, he owes 16. Then 32, 64. Eventually, by square 21, the king owed over a million grains of rice. But he didn't panic. That's about 15 kilograms of rice. Not bad. You can get that at Costco. But by square 32, halfway through, the king owed this guy 2 billion grains of rice. That would weigh over 33,000 kilograms. Now shipping costs are starting to be an issue. By square 50, the total would have exceeded global rice production in the year 2020, which is many years after this story. By the end of the chessboard, square 64, it would have been over 144 billion metric tons of rice. That's a lot. How do you even conceptualize that much of something? That's like 2,700 times heavier than the Great Wall of China. Obviously, the king couldn't pay that amount of rice, so he said, nice try, and the story ends a few different ways. I think he either paid the guy with something that wasn't rice, or he didn't pay him, or he had him beheaded for his insolence. It probably would have made sense and been kind of funny to just dump a bag of rice on the chessboard and say, here you go. Or maybe the king hired this guy to manage his ancient 401k on account of having a good grasp of the power of compounding. We don't know what became of the rice chessboard guy, but the lesson is clear. When compounding is applied, small sums become larger sums fairly quickly. Let's turn back to Ben Franklin's Advice to a Young Tradesman, written by an old one. Quote, Remember that money is of a prolific generating nature. Money can beget money, and its offspring can beget more, and so on. Five shillings turned is six, turned again tis seven and three pence, and so on till it becomes a hundred pounds. The more there is of it, the more it produces every turning, so that the profits rise quicker and quicker. End quote. You may be thinking of a related folk wisdom concept here. It takes money to make money. That's actually not from Ben Franklin. That's Titus Plotus, a Roman playwright. His Latin expression translates to, you must spend money to make money. Investing isn't quite spending, so the modern phrasing is a bit more accurate for us. Like poor Richard says, we must learn of the ancients what is best, but of the moderns what is fittest. But how do you get the money to invest in the first place? Poor Richard might say, if you would be wealthy, think of saving as well as getting. Or here's a rhyme from the 1737 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac. A penny saved is two pence clear. A pin a day is a groat a year. Save and have. Every little makes a mickle. A mickle means a lot. Ben Franklin also pointed out, in his advice to a young tradesman, that compounding works in both directions. Quote, He that buys upon credit pays interest for what he buys. And he that pays ready money 
might let that money out to use, so that he that possesses anything that he has bought pays interest for the use of it. Consider then, when you are tempted to buy any unnecessary household stuff or any superfluous thing, whether you will be willing to pay interest, and interest upon interest for it as long as you live, and more if it grows worse by using. End quote. All sorts of gurus have popped up in modern times to help people out of debt, and old Ben was sounding the alarm almost 300 years ago. It doesn't even take much explanation for a modern audience. We all know credit card debt is not ideal, for instance, but we're convinced to take more and more of it on to fuel a cycle of consumption. This isn't a sermon on spending habits, just a way of pointing out the fact that Ben Franklin knew this was an issue before our country was even founded. Unfortunately, it's only gotten worse despite everyone knowing it's a problem. As Ben, or poor Richard, would say, want of care does us more damage than want of knowledge. From this perspective, it's not what you don't know that hurts you, so much as what you know but don't implement. This next part may be a bit controversial. I wanted to conclude with examples of everyday people who built wealth the old-fashioned way. No, not by exploitation or conquest or monopoly, or one-sided colonial business dealings, not by striking an ocean of oil beneath their feet either. I'm talking about earning and saving, about industry and frugality, hard work and discipline. Did anyone get wealthy that way? On the one hand, we have a notion of wealth that it has to be inherited, or stolen somehow, and stockpiled to the exclusion of others. On the other, we have the American dream, that you can do it yourself, and also that by building wealth you can create value for other people and enrich your community. Maybe they're both true, and there's already plenty of examples of that first idea, but Ben Franklin was a supporter and example of the second one. So I thought I'd share some modern-day support for Ben Franklin's idea that you can build wealth through your actions, even if you didn't hit the lottery the day you were born. In the 1990s, Thomas J. Stanley and Bill Danko studied affluence, they surveyed a bunch of people who had a net worth of at least $1 million. They had some surprising findings, and they wrote a somewhat controversial but popular book. They called it The Millionaire Next Door. Any book that makes a surprising claim is bound to generate some controversy. The premise of this book is that the people they surveyed, on average, lived well below their means. About 80% of these millionaires they surveyed were first-generation affluent, some of them came from very working-class backgrounds. They had some commonalities in their behaviors. They invested 15-20% to 20 of their household realized income every year. They rarely sold their investments. For most of them, most of their wealth was in their businesses. They drove older model and relatively inexpensive vehicles. They lived in modest houses relative to their net worth and income. In fact, Stanley and Denko derived a rule of thumb that if you wanted to eventually become wealthy, you should not spend more than 2.5 times your gross annual income on a house. That verges on fantasy in many current real estate markets, but it shows the level of frugality of these wealthy folks that they surveyed. Several of the millionaires described clipping coupons and primarily eating home-cooked meals. Stanley and Danko wrote their book on the premise that wealth was not only attainable for everyone, but a product of hard work and discipline. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I think Ben Franklin would approve. However, there were some flaws with the book's methodology and general tone that deserve mention. The most prosaic criticism 
seems to be more about the philosophical underpinnings of the book than the efficacy of any of the financial methods they recommended. Thomas Frank, a writer for the New York Times, is a frequently cited critic of The Millionaire Next Door. He accused the book of having a, quote, militantly Calvinist attitude towards consumption, in which, quote, saving and investing are ends in themselves, evidence of moral virtue, while spending is empty dissipation, end quote. I really like his phrasing there. Spending is empty dissipation. Write that at the top of your budget. Just kidding. Poor Richard says, save and have is better than spend and crave. I get what that writer is saying, though, about the Calvinism, the finance as a moral virtue thing. Maybe it's dangerous to equate your financial habits with moral virtue. Ben Franklin didn't seem to draw a distinction between the two. The 13 virtues that he drew up were all compatible with capitalism. He may well have seen those virtues as the engine driving it, a sort of Protestant work ethic. In any event, here's a truth that we can hold to be self-evident. Believing that millionaires are somehow inherently virtuous, or more virtuous than others on account of their success, is not only foolish, it's wrong, it's dangerous. Having money doesn't make you good. And not having it doesn't make you bad. There we go, as if that needed saying. That doesn't mean that virtue is without its payoffs. If you say virtue leads to wealth, therefore those that aren't wealthy aren't virtuous, you're actually committing a basic logical fallacy called affirming the consequent. The reasoning doesn't hold up. The virtues espoused by Ben Franklin 300 years ago do lead to wealth. It just takes time and effort and sacrifice. And it won't be for everybody, just like most people don't exercise. Stanley and Danko use some hyperbole in their book. They have some flowery descriptions. They gloss over some details. So what? It also doesn't mean that there's no value to be gained from their study. Who else can you study to learn about success than people who have had success? Maybe you could study unsuccessful people and work in reverse, but those are your two options. I have a hard time believing there are Ben Franklin aficionados out there working hard, saving and investing in a very rational way, and then ending up destitute. The sharpest non-philosophical criticism of Millionaire Next Door probably comes from Nassim Taleb, author of many interesting books, including one called Fooled by Randomness. I'm going to read a paragraph from that book because it sums it up nicely. Quote, There is a silly book called A Millionaire Next Door, and one of the authors wrote an even sillier book called The Millionaire's Mind. They interviewed a bunch of millionaires to figure out how these people got rich. Visibly, they came up with a bunch of traits. You need a little bit of intelligence, a lot of our hard work, and a lot of risk-taking. And they derive that, hey, taking risk is good for you if you want to become a millionaire. What these people forgot to do is go take a look at the less visible cemetery. In other words, bankrupt people, failures, people who went out of business, and look at their traits. They would have discovered that some of the same traits are shared by these people, like hard work and risk-taking. This tells me that the unique trait that the millionaires had in common was mostly luck. This bias makes us miscompute the odds and wrongly ascribe skills. If you funded one million unemployed people endowed with no more than the ability to say buy or sell, odds are that you will break even in the aggregate, minus transaction costs. But a few will hit the jackpot, simply because the base cohort is very large. End quote. Atalab is a brilliant guy, and it's entirely possible that Millionaire Next Door was a silly book. 
But Talib does a little straw man arguing here. He makes it sound like risk-taking was the primary driver of wealth for Stanley and Dunko. It wasn't. Their book had very little about stock picking or risk. It had a lot about clipping coupons, living in a small house, driving an inexpensive car, and generally living below your means. Also, building wealth is a much more complex endeavor than just hitting a buy or sell button. But his metaphor is still pretty good. Taleb makes a very good point that there is a survivorship bias in the data. The authors surveyed between 300 and 400 people for their book, and their selection criteria was that the person already had over $1 million. Stanley and Denko did not, to my knowledge, study people who failed to accumulate wealth despite possessing traits or behaviors like the successful ones they studied. They had no control group. Their sample size was quite small. But the underlying philosophy is clear enough. If you save your money, if you don't overspend on purchases, you can accumulate wealth, barring some catastrophes. But even if catastrophe strikes, you're better off with industry and frugality than without them. You're better positioned to handle shocks, which, by the way, is related to the subject of Taleb's other book, Anti-Fragile, but we won't get into that today. The millionaires surveyed in The Millionaire Next Door were better positioned to capitalize on luck because they made frugal choices. They put themselves in that position because they understood what Ben Franklin understood about the way to wealth. And you will be better positioned to do the same if you heed the advice of poor Richard, quoted here from another Ben Franklin publication, appropriately titled The Way to Wealth. Quote, Gain may be temporary and uncertain, but ever, while you live, expense is constant and certain, and it is easier to build two chimneys than to keep one in fuel, as poor Richard says. So... Rather go to bed supperless than rise in debt. Get what you can and what you get hold. Tis the stone that will turn all your lead into gold. End quote. 